Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. I've entitled the morning's message, Witnessing the Jesus Style. Paul already read part of our text this morning, but we're actually going to start with verse 1 and and make our way through verse by verse all all the way to um, verse 38. So the Gospel of John, um, we've already talked about it being divided into five sections. Section number one, um, John's whole purpose for writing his Gospel is to proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ as being the creator, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Section one began with chapter one, verses one uh, through 18. So that was the first section of the book. Section two picks up in verse, chapter one, verse 19, and goes through all the way through chapter four. So this morning, um, we will be finishing the second section of the Gospel of John. Now next Sunday, uh, we begin the third section of John's Gospel. It's the biggest section of John's Gospel. It goes from chapter five all the way through chapter 12, and the title of this section is The Opposition to the Son of Man. This morning we'll look at the woman at the well, and we're gonna use it as a tool for witnessing to others, and basically how the Lord himself witnessed of himself to this woman. So if you go back to chapter four, we're gonna read the first three verses, and uh, I have to use a little bit of uh, a foundation in order for you to really get an understanding of what's taking place here in John 4, you have to um, know the Old Testament and um, how it is that Samaritans came to be and why this situation is an awkward situation and how did it become an awkward situation in the first place. So let's begin by just reading 1, 2, and 3 and I'll comment on those verses and then we read in verse 1, therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So the Pharisees now realize that John the Baptist is no longer the enemy. He is fading out of the picture. John's Disciples are now following Jesus. And so now Jesus is the focus point, and that'll lead us into the next section of the book, the opposition, primarily from these religious leaders who see Jesus as a threat, and therefore they're in opposition to him. Jesus at this time is not wanting a confrontation with the Pharisees, so he leaves Judea and he heads for the Galilee. Israel, at this time, is divided into three sections. You had Judah in the south, you had the Galilee in the north, and Samaria in the middle. Now, again, if you were a Jew and you lived in in the Galilee, three times a year you would travel from the Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Passover, and Sukkot. 
And um, a Jew would not walk through Samaria. They would actually walk around it. Now, as the fly crows, it was shorter to go straight north. But they wouldn't do that. The reason they didn't do that is why we're going to take a little break here and give you a little bit of background. And again, I can't stress enough the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God. Because if we didn't teach the Old Testament, you'd only have half of a Bible study this morning and your understanding of why there's animosity between a Samaritan and a Jew. So with that being said, would you turn to me to 2 Kings chapter 17. And I'm going to give you a little bit of background, the history um, of Israel. When Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, crossing the Jordan and taking Jericho. That generation did pretty good. But then for the next 360 years, um, Israel would look something like this. They would go up, do well, and they'd go down. And God would raise up a judge when they were down. And then they'd get back on track, and then they'd fall again. And so the Lord would raise up another judge. This cycle went on for 360 years. Finally, the people said, we want to be like other nations. Give us a king. And so we have Saul at men's prayer yesterday. Um, We actually were reading uh, how Saul uh, had his last days. He died on the mountains of Gilboa, we were reading. And uh, they took his body and hung it on the wall of Beth Sheen. And I remember commenting to the guys at Men's Prayer, I said, guys, when I read this, I have a visual, because one of the places we visit, the Tell, which is the archeological ruins of Beth Sheen, are still there. And probably one of the largest archeological digs taking place in the world today is at Beth Sheen. Uh, When the Romans took it over, they made it into a Roman city, And in one day, earthquake came, leveled the whole ground, everybody moves out. So now you have um, almost 2,000 years of um, debris filling in. And when they discovered Betsheen, it was just two columns sticking up. Now, from the time I went there in 79, all these years later, it, it, we've, we've watched this city emerge out of nothing. A complete Roman city, sort of like Pompeii, completely unearthed, even to the point where they put holograms up. Everybody know what a hologram is? So that they make the city come alive. They have people in shops. You can hear the clickety-clack of, of horses. When, where there's supposed to be a fountain, you look and there's a hologram. So it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And... Um, I was mentioning to one of the, um, the guys, him and his wife were taking their first trip to Israel, and I sort of punched him, and I said, you're going to be here, and you're going to have a whole different perspective when you read the story about Saul and his body being hanged on the wall of Bet Sheen. The Bible really comes to life. So after Saul reigned for 40 years, then we had King David, of course. He reigned for 40 years. Then we had Solomon, for 40 years. Now during this time, Israel was one nation. It was not divided. But after Saul, Solomon, Israel was divided into 
two nations. Um, There was a man named Jeroboam, and he headed up a revolt, caused division, and he took 10 of the 12, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, he took 10 of them, and he took them to the north. And he knew he had a difficulty because Jerusalem, where Judah and Benjamin would stay, was the focal point for worship for a Jewish person. So Jeroboam's got to come up with a way to keep them from going back. So what does he do? He makes two golden calves. I mean, the irony of that, two golden calves. (laughs) He puts one in Bethel and one up in Dan. And he says, here, O Israel, here's your gods that led you out. And they began to worship them. Um, Ten northern tribes are called in the scriptures Israel. First and second kings talk about both the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and Benjamin. First and second chronicles don't bring in the ten northern tribes. They just bring in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now, of the years that they had kings in Israel, the 10 northern tribes, was 19 or 20, I always get it mixed up. Um, Over its history, not one of them was good. After every king of Israel, this is what said about their reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord after his father, Jeroboam. And that was true with every single one of the kings that reigned in Israel. When you get down to Judah and Benjamin, well, they also had 19 or 20 kings, and they had eight that were good. The twin kingdoms of Israel and Judah pursue a collision course with captivity as the glory of the once united kingdom becomes increasingly diminished. Division has led to decline and now ends in a double deportation with Israel captured by the Assyrians and Judah by Babylon. This book traces the history of the divided kingdom. If you're in 2 Kings chapter 17, I brought you here because they have gone as far as the Lord is gonna let them go. And in 722 BC, we have Assyria coming to Samaria and taking it captive. So let's pick it up in verse one, 2 Kings 17. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. He reigned for nine years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalemassar, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal, and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers so. The king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria that he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now verse five and six. Now, the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away 
to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor and the river Gozan and the cities of the Medes. So you have the majority, and I stress majority of the Jewish people being taken out of Samaria and northern Israel and now they're in captivity in and conquered by um, the Assyrians. I gotta be careful not to get too sidetracked here, but it is the second service, so I'll get a little sidetracked. How many of you have heard of British Israelism? If you have, just raise your hand. British Israelism. Let me give you a nutshell version. British Israelism is the idea that, how many of you have heard the term the 10 lost tribes of Israel? Everybody's heard of that. Well, where do they go? Um, the British Israelism is the idea that these 10 tribes migrated all the way into Europe. And as a result, the descendants that are in Europe are actually part of these 10 last tribes that were lost. Let me just start out by telling you this isn't true. But it gained popularity not only in Europe, but also it also made inroads into America with... Um, uh, Herbert Armstrong with the uh, Worldwide Church of God. How many of you remember that organization? Before he died, he claimed that his church was the 144,000. Well, when he died, uh, the whole denomination fell apart because it simply wasn't true. But you ever wonder why we have a monarchy in England? Why there's uh, coronations? And do you know that every time they have a coronation for a king or a queen, that they actually have a stone that they call this, this, the stone of Sconer or something like that. And they claim it's the very stone that Jacob laid his head on for a pillow. And they're using that as an authority that shows that they're really part of Israel. That's why it's called British Israelism. And when they coronate a new king or a new queen, why are there still kings and queens? Well, it all goes back to this idea that the 10 lost tribes are ended up in, in, in Europe. Okay, with all that being said, none of it's true. <laughs> why? Because they're not lost. When you read Revelation chapter seven, it says that before the tribulation actually gets going, God is gonna seal 144,000 Jews, not Brits, not Americans. And it says 12,000 from the tribe of uh, Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. And they said, these are Jewish people. They're not lost. The Lord knows where they were and where they are. And they will once again be regathered and we'll have that many come out. Um, okay. That's as much as I can do with that little sidetrack there. So in 722 BC, Syria invaded Israel and captured the 10 northern tribes. Uh, Then they sent back Syrians to intermarry with the Jews. Go to verse 27 of 2 Kings 17. It says in verse 27, then the king of Assyria commanded saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there and let him go down and dwell there. He's talking about northern Israel now. And let them teach the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests who they had carried away from Samaria 
came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued and made gods of its own and put them in the house of the high place which the Samaritans had made and every nation in a city where they dwelt. So we have Assyrians coming back into Israel, intermarrying with people uh, that were Jewish, but still were not worshiping in Jerusalem. So that they were half Jewish and half Syrian. And they are called Samaritans. The Jews would not allow them to worship in Jerusalem. As a result, they developed their own worship on a place called Mount Gerizim. And what they taught their people was that the Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim. That Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Gerizim. That Abraham offered Isaac on, take a wild guess, Mount Gerizim. Now imagine being a Jew and you hearing this and it's just blasphemy for them to make such statements. And as a result, let's go back to um, uh, John chapter four. And if you look at verse nine, it's because of this that if you read verse nine, it says, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Why didn't they have any dealings with Samaritans? This is why I had to take you back and give you a little bit of a history. How did a Samaritan become a Samaritan? Well, uh, they intermarried with Syrians or half-breeds. They weren't allowed to worship, so they came up with their own way of doing things, and they were making it up as they went. What's interesting to me about Samaritans is that whenever the Lord spoke about a Samaritan, it was always in the positive context. Let me just give you an example of the good Samaritan. And uh, the question arises, uh, who's my brother and how do I love him? And the Lord says, well, there was a man coming up from Jericho, he ran into some robbers, they beat him up, he was bloodied up, couldn't move. A Levite came by, saw him, and walked on the other side of the road. Pharisee came by, he saw him too. And he walked on the other side of the road. And then it says the Samaritan came by and he looked at the man and he had compassion on him. And he bound up his wounds, put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, asked for the innkeeper. He says, I gotta go on a business trip but I'm coming back this way. You provide a room for him, give him meals and I'll pick up the tab when I pass through again. And then Jesus says, which one of these three loved his neighbor? So, again, the point is, the Lord, when he talked about a Samaritan, he talked about it in the positive, not in, in a negative. But the average person, as we're going to see here, is um, um, uh, going to be, let's pick it up in verse four, where the Lord, because he doesn't want a confrontation with the religious leaders, is going now to Galilee, So they either go down to the Jordan River and go up the Jordan Valley, or they would go around, but you never went straight through. And he says, we we need to go through Samaria. I can just see the disciples raising their eyebrows at that one. And so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. So these are Jewish people, not 
full Jews. And now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from the journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And I often wonder, why would the Lord have to tell us that little bit of information? Who cares what type of day it is? What is the sixth hour? Well, it's high noon. This last year in Israel, I talked to some friends who went there during late spring and early summer. They just said it was hot, hot, hot. So high noon in Israel, a woman would not be gathering water at 12 o'clock noon. This was a job that you did early in the morning or you did late in the evening when it was cool. So the question is, why was she out there at the sixth hour? We find um, uh, in verse six and seven here that a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink uh, for his disciples had gone away into the city uh, to buy. Jesus goes straight through Samaria. He had a divine appointment with a woman who needed him. John 4 is an excellent example of how to witness and share our faith. So how do you share your faith? Well, somebody's gotta start a conversation. And so the Lord sees this woman. By the way, um, a, a rabbi was never to be alone with a woman. And here the Lord is one-on-one with this, this gal. And he begins the conversation, give me a drink. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, well, how is it that you, a Jew, uh, and I'm reading into this a little bit, but I, I think it's got a little sarcasm to it. You Jew, you a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, do you see why we had to go back to the Old Testament and give the history of how they came to be and why this animosity exists? So they don't get along. And this woman comes right out with it. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, what are you doing? What are you doing talking to me? And so the first point that I want to bring out about witnessing here is a woman is surprised. How is it? He's started a conversation. The first principle we're going to learn about how Jesus witnesses is that he starts things up to try to... get into a dialogue and conversation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter nine and Paul talking about witnessing tells us what he did and what his method was when he would talk with people. So picking it up in verse 19, 1 Corinthians nine, Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jew I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. Now Gentiles, to those who are without law as without law, not being without law towards God but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, 
that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. The first thing you need to understand about witnessing is who you're witnessing to. And when you look at them and uh, you start a dialogue, there's a lot of Christians that I know that have zero tack when it comes to witnessing. What do you mean, Dwight, zero tack? Well, they start the conversation, they keep the conversation going, and they close the conversation, and they don't stop. They put mouth on auto drive, and it continues, and then they feel they shared the gospel. That's not being wise, and it's not tactful. What did Paul say? No. Who? What's my audience here? Who am I addressing? Jesus sees a Samaritan. He realized barriers have to come down. Look, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't get along. What's this big brother? Why are you bringing this up? Well, the Lord knew that. He was the one who said, we must go through Samaria. Why? Why is this woman out at noon? Well, because she's a woman of questionable character. I believe she was there at high noon because she wanted to be alone. I believe she's deeply hurt, as we're gonna see. And one thing that as we go through this, and I'll make this point again, as we will every time we look at Jesus dealing one-on-one with somebody, in John's gospel, what the Lord will do is that he will tell Uh, Jesus knows things about that person that only that person knows. And we've seen that um, um, with um, winning people to the Lord. He speaks to this thirsty woman here about living water. Well, he talked about um, an aging Nicodemus about being born again. To the blind man, he was the light of the world. To the disciples, he talked to fishermen about being fishers of men. He looked at what they could identify with. And it's a way of opening up rather than having the animosity. He starts a question. And let's go back to um, John. And he says, give me a drink of water. Well, she's stunned. And, um, but the Lord uh, opened this conversation with this gal we're going to read verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, she's beginning to soften. The woman at this point in verse 11, we find the woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then will you get this living water? He's got her attention. Um, Her guard has just come down. Do you notice he went from calling Jesus Jew to sir? It's changing attitude. And you have, she's in dialogue with him. What do you mean? You don't have anything to draw with. This well is deep. Where where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him 
will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. I'm trying to put myself in the sandals of this gal. What kind of talk is this? Living water, and as she's trying to take it in, in verse 15, the woman said, again, sir, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to come out and thirst nor come here to draw. She doesn't get it. That's because she's not born again yet. So she's trying to figure out what the Lord is talking about with living water. This brings us to the second point of the four that I'm gonna give you this, this morning about witnessing the Jesus style, okay? He realizes in order for her to become saved that she has to be aware that she is a sinner and in need of salvation. Can you guys give me an amen on that? I like to say it this way. There can be no conversion without conviction. We should never tell people, just give your life to the Lord and everything is just gonna be wonderful because just the opposite is true. Give your life to Jesus and you're gonna enter into spiritual warfare, the flesh against the spirit 24-7, battling. And so we... I like to tell people if I have an opportunity to lead a person to the Lord, okay, now it's time to be honest. First things first. What you just did here right now, you need to know that you're gonna go home and you're gonna encounter spiritual warfare. And I know that because that's exactly what the parable of the sower tells us. As soon as the seed was planted on the ground, then comes the devil and tries to take the word out of their heart lest that person should believe and be saved. So know this, you just accepted Christ, but that doesn't mean the devil's gonna give up on you. On the contrary, he's gonna try to do everything to undo what you just did. Are you ready for that? Because that's what's gonna happen. And so what you need to get into is what we call rooted and grounded. That's the next one. This person didn't, the second seed was one where they had no root, it fell on stones. Because it had no root, it only lived for a little while and didn't make it. So this, I know this is Christianese to some when we say rooted and grounded. Rooted and grounded basically means as a baby Christian, what do you drink? The milk of the word. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word so you can grow thereby. So here, the idea of her not being able to comprehend how does the Lord go about bringing about the conviction that she needs salvation? So her question was, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here. And Jesus said, okay, tell you what, go call your husband and have him come here. And um, um, the woman answered, uh, go call Jesus. Said, well, go call your husband. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said well, I have no husband. For you see, you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. So I suppose you're telling me the truth. He dropped a bomb on her that nobody knew. And here is the case I was telling you about earlier where the Lord is gonna tell an individual 
something about themselves that only they know. Oh, maybe people knew about husband number one, husband number two. Maybe that was out there. Nobody, I can guarantee you, knew that it was five. And that she was just shacking up with this guy. She had had it with marriage, and she was giving up on marriage. So now I'm just going to live with this guy. And the Lord comes right out and tells her, do you think he has her attention at this point? Nobody knows this. How do you know this? And by this time, um, we read the next verse where she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Wow, that's doing pretty good, Lord. You went from Jew to sir to now you're a prophet. Why a prophet? Because only a prophet has insights and can and know things that only God knows. Oh, she was beginning to open up big time. And all of a sudden, uh, just try to identify with this woman. Five different guys, five different husbands. Can't make it with any of them. The ones that people knew about, she was definitely, in my opinion, a woman that had a reputation. Why do you say that, Dwight? Because she wanted to be alone. She didn't want to be with anybody. That's why she's drawing water at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. The Lord saw that heart all the way down in Judea, in Jerusalem. Said, guys, we have to go through Samaria. Why? Because the Lord seeks out those that have the greatest need. Good place for an amen. He said, I have to go to Samaria. There's this girl that's had such a tragic life. She's hurting more than words. She's buried everything down inside and um, uh, she's giving up on life and now she's in the process of just living with, with a man rather than, than being married. But deep down inside, like all of us, we have questions. We don't tell people about them. Maybe they're too personal. But number three, when it comes about sharing your faith, is being able to do what Jesus just did right here, and that is to draw her out. That's why witnessing, the best way you can go about witnessing is begin a conversation with a question. Get them to start talking to you. And if you can get them to start a conversation, uh, who knows where it's going to lead. Sometimes it leads to, well, I gave him a God of wonders and went on. And I pray that, somebody else picks up um, my witnessing and takes it a little bit farther. This is just coming to mind. It wasn't in the first service. I remember um, really felt compelled to witness to this guy. A couple years back, and I began sharing the gospel with him. Guy goes like that, I don't believe this. Do you realize that you're the fourth person in four days to tell me about Jesus? (laughs) And I just laughed out loud, and I said, Duh, when are you going to wake up? You know, The Lord is trying to get your attention. The Bible talks about some sowing and others reaping. So, you know, always share and just trust the Lord that his word will not return in vain. You're just planting seeds. It might be somebody else who gets to do the harvesting, but you're in the seed sowing uh, business. But now those questions that were way down inside come right up to the surface in verse 21. And he says, "Our this is the, the gal, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. What mountain is it? Mount Gerizim, 
And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where you ought to worship. And basically she wanted to know who's right here. Are we right? Are you right? I don't know. Do you know? And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, there on Mount Gerizim, by the way, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. How is the Lord doing it? He's actually looking for people, seeking people to worship him. We should never come around and say, well, I finally figured it out. Jesus is the answer. I found him. No, you didn't find him. He found you. He's the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost. So he's the one creating the circumstances for that divine appointment to take place. But when we come to the Lord or are close to it, we do have these deep questions way down inside and hers was, okay, um, is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? And the Lord said, no. No, what do you mean no? No, it's not a place. But because God is spirit, you worship him wherever you are because 1 Corinthians 3 says, my body and your body is the temple. The temple, not in Jerusalem, but your temple is the body of the Holy Spirit. And what he wants us to do is to do it with honesty and truth. He says, if you got an ought against somebody and it's not right, it said, don't come to church. Make it right and then come to church. That's what truth is all about. Don't come and you got a grudge and you got a bad attitude about something. The reason Paul read what he read this morning before communion, it says, let a man examine himself. And if we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. So a big part of communion is you have the opportunity to say, okay, Lord, I said this this week, that was wrong, I got in the flesh here, shouldn't have done that, I am sorry. And I'm examining myself, then I get up and take communion. But it says, make sure that you make those things right. You've been justified, just as though you've never sinned at all. Justification. And the cleansing can come if the repentance is there. But in this gal's case, she hasn't become convicted until the Lord asks the question, oh yeah, you've had five husbands. Whoa. And you're living with somebody right now. Conviction. And as a result, now she's aware. And so the Lord says, spirit and truth for God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, well, she's heard enough. Now the question that's really nagging her is how in the world did he know? I've never seen him before, but yet he knows. How does he know? So now we read, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Can you see what she's thinking all along here? She's got serious questions. Am I looking at the Messiah? That's what she's thinking right here. I know that the Messiah is coming who's called Christ. And when he comes, let me give you my version of it. He'll do just what you just did. He'll do what you just did. He will tell us all things. 
And I'm sure she's going, how in the world did she find out about number four and five? Nobody knows that, but he knew. And then the Lord, she's suspicious. She says, you know, there's talk that the Messiah is coming, the Christ, and when he comes, he's gonna tell us all things. And then in verse 26, the Lord lays it all out. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Whoa. And she knew it. I mean, the Lord had drawn it out to the point to ask the questions. He answered all of them and more. And she had no doubt about it. And we read in verse 28 that the woman left her water pots, went by her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they go out. Now she's witnessing. She left what she was doing and she went in and immediately, whether she knew it or not, she was witnessing for Christ. Come and see this guy. He's told me things that only God can know. Check him out. And this was a spontaneous, natural result of what happened to her. Now I went over verse 27, so I want to go back to that. So after the Lord reveals himself in 26, he's 27, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Remember, a rabbi cannot be one-on-one by himself with a woman. And yet here he is. And she's a Samaritan on top of it. And no one said, why do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And she left what she was doing and she started to witness about Jesus. And really, that should be the natural response to anybody who really gets born again. And um, I was so excited when I got saved. I, I did tell my friends. My friends did think I was crazy. Uh, but I had to tell them, listen, friends, you know, and we're all excited about the latest Beatle song that's number one or the latest album that just came out. Aren't we talking about it? Aren't we saying, hey, man, you got to listen to this. This is awesome. We do that. And then you're telling me that I cannot share with you something that is the most important thing that's ever happened in my life? And so that should be a natural response of being able to, to want to do that. So she left what she was doing and went into the city and said to him, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this not be uh, the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to him and to another, well, has somebody given him something to eat that we don't know about? And the Lord said, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are ready for harvesting. Now, uh, let me go back and point out so far where we've gone as far as um, um, sharing our faith. Number one, becoming all things to all people. Um, Trying to become like them, read them, so that you can know how to communicate with them. Then understand that you can't give a Joel Olstein invitation. 
Okay, you gotta tell them the truth that there's no conversion without conviction. You have to make them understand. This is the way I do it. When somebody, uh, when I'm sharing with somebody and then I find out I'm a pastor, and I go, oh, pastor, well, Reverend Doville. I said, look, nobody ever calls me pastor or reverend. You can call me Dwight. And just so that you understand that I'm no different than you are, um, let's say I'm talking to somebody who's uh, um, a drug dealer, okay? I said, so you think you're, you're a drug dealer? I used to deal drugs, yep. And um, I used to be just totally into myself, me, myself, and I, that's all I lived for, that's all I cared about. I'm a product of the 60s, which means sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You want to know anything else about me? Well, what it does, their eyes get this big because they're not used to having pastors talk on a level that I can identify with. And I can say, listen, I've been where you're at. And I know you're drinking that water. I used to drink that water, but it doesn't satisfy me. And I can look you square in the eye because I've been where you're at and I can tell you that you're not happy. And if I ask you, are you happy? Would you be honest enough to tell me the truth? And that sort of sets them on edge. Am I happy? Oh, that's an interesting question. Am I happy? Hmm. Am I content? I ask that question a lot. And when they contemplate that, am I happy? Am I content? I have to come up with no to both those answers before Christ. Because I tried all those things to satisfy the empty spot in my heart and none of those things from the 60s could do it. Anybody else here from the 60s that can give me an amen on that? <laughs> you can say, I have been there, I have done that, it's empty. Paul Clark's got a song, I've been around the mountain, I can tell you that there's no fountain that can fill the need within. It's only through Jesus that the Lord God can feed us. It's got to be in him that we abide. Abide in the vine. And when you're abiding in the vine, you'll bring forth fruit. And he will satisfy your soul to the point that it will not only be living waters in you, but as we're about to, we read earlier, springing out and overflowing actually into other people's lives. Living water. John 7, we'll get to it eventually. Jesus talking about living water. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and I'll give you living waters. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. So, what we have here in verse 34, um, he points to his disciples. He says, look, I, guys, I have something to eat that you're not aware of. My food. And what I want to do is finish the work that the Father has given me to do. And he says, by the way, look at these fields. And don't say that it's four months, it'll be harvest time. Where was he? when he pointed to these fields. He was in Samaria. Can you imagine how shocked the disciples must have been when he said, your witnessing field is Samaria? Uh, That had to, um, the ignored, the despised, those that are looked down upon, that he was telling, this is a missionary verse, missionaries use it all over the world. But where it was said and who it was said to is what gets my attention. It was in Samaria, and Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Don't waste your time on them. The Lord is saying, no, just the opposite. Samaria is the fields. And the Lord is looking for such to worship him. 
Now, uh, let's finish this up in 36 through 38. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. What is this telling us? This tells us that if you will invest in sharing your faith and witnessing the Jesus style, that you're going to be rewarded for it. I'm gonna have you turn to two places as we begin to wind down this morning in the Old Testament. One is Proverbs chapter 11, please find that. And the other one is Daniel chapter 12. Proverbs 11 and Daniel 12. Proverbs 11 says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. I mentioned this morning about um, rewards and I remembered a story that Pastor Chuck told because Chuck was going to be a doctor, not a pastor. He went to school to be a doctor. And his mother was always praying that he would go into the ministry, but she would never tell him that's what she was praying for. She wanted the Lord to show him. So he was at a camp, a retreat, just like the girls are at a retreat this weekend, Green Lake. And it was at this place that the Lord got a hold of Chuck and said, Chuck, it's great that you want to be a doctor. And you can help people. But in reality, you're only helping them for a very, very short period of time. If you go into the ministry and you're sharing the gospel and you're teaching, now you're investing something that's not temporal, but it's eternal. And it simply made a lot of common sense to Chuck. So he goes home and he says, Mom, I was at camp. I decided I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to go into the ministry. And Mom goes, thank you, Lord because Chuck didn't know that mom was praying for that very thing. She wanted the Lord to show him, and I'm sure glad he did. Um, Those who win souls are wise. If you're in Daniel chapter 12, verse three, let's pick it up, verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, what does that mean? I want you to think of the person that shared Jesus Christ with you and ask a simple question. Are you grateful for that person? Do you realize that you're gonna be eternally grateful for that person? The former things are gonna pass away, but when it says you'll shine forever and ever, Somehow we're going to carry with us. Paul says, you're my reward. You're my crown. He's, about, he's talking to people that he had led to Christ. He says, you're my glory. You're my crown. Because he understands, as we just read here, um, those who are, are, are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we're talking rewards here. And uh, the, re- 
the rewards are, are eternal and that gratefulness that God used you as an instrument to actually influence a person's eternal life. My friends, there's nothing that I've experienced on this planet, no greater joy than being able to pray with somebody to accept the Lord. There's nothing that, can, that can, even comes close to that. Realizing the implications, lost, found, um, sin, salvation, a brand new life, and somehow the Lord, the Bible says the Lord, so we don't get big-headed about this, the Lord chooses the foolish people of the world to confound the wise. So guess what, which camp we're in? <laughs> we're the foolish ones. The Lord picked out, you know, these guys from the Galilee that were fishermen, okay? He didn't go to Hebrew University down in Jerusalem. He says, give me some PhDs here, the guys who really got their act together and, and uh, know their scripture's really good. No. It was three years being discipled by the Lord himself. And then he cut them loose. And he says, um, well, what he says is what we're going to close with. Go with me to Matthew chapter 28. And we'll tie this up this morning. While you're turning, I'll read 2 Corinthians 3.12, where Paul says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Wherever Paul went, he, he dialogued. Usually he got thrown in jail because of it. Did that stop him? Nah. They stoned him once in Lystra, left him as dead. I personally believe he did die. That's when he went to heaven. And um, when he came out of it, you know what he did? Got up and walked right back into Lystra. How do you keep a guy like that down? This hope that we have, we use great boldness of speech. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save some and the weak things of the world to confound the wise. But this last part here in Matthew 28, of course, we're all familiar with it, and I'll close with it this morning. And that is 18 through 20. We call it, of course, the great suggestion. The great suggestion. No, no, no the Great Commission. You see, my friends, you and I have been commissioned. And we've been commissioned to, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Some of you maybe have never witnessed in your life and the very thought of it brings terror to you. And I understand that. You know how I learned how to witness to people? I remember the first time I witnessed to somebody. I'd had it. With, I'd given my life to the Lord, but I never told. I don't think I've ever told this story before. This might be a new one. Um, early 70s, I was hitchhiking in Highway 8 in Indiana. And there was no rides. But I was determined. The Lord had broke me to the point saying, when are you going to share your faith with somebody? And I remember the wrestling match that went on. And I said, okay, Lord, you give me a ride and I'll witness to the person that picks me up. Because there was nobody out on Highway 8 in northern Indiana. And sure enough, 
pickup truck pulls up and I get in and I start unloading. And um, you know how you learn how to witness? You'll do it wrong a whole lot of times. I got out of the truck and I said this to myself, well, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I'm not gonna say this anymore. And it's a learning curve. How do you learn to witness? Just start doing it and you'll say, well, that worked and this didn't. And don't be mouth on automatic. Go for the dialogue. Try to open them up. As it says, um, um, counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. That's what Jesus was doing. That's Proverbs 20, verse five. Draw it out. Well, it took me a long time to figure out that you need to get a person interested in what, find common ground. And in so doing, um, you can share your own personal story. Everybody has a story. So I'm gonna speak to the person here who still struggles with sharing their faith by asking you this question. I'm talking to men right now. Sorry, ladies, the gals are on retreat. So I'm talking to the men. And you have somebody on your heart and you already got plans for Friday night. You're doing something else. Why not put those plans on hold? The person that you've been thinking about, how can I ever share with this guy about Christ? I'm not very good at it. Well, Jay Seeger is. And Andy Polito is gonna tell his story. Why not invite him to the stake and study? Give the, pay, you know, you're talking a, a nice rib steak for five bucks. And you tell him that you make sure you're gonna pick up the tab for him coming. Well, what's it gonna be like? Well, just a bunch of guys getting together. I'm going to have Jay Seeger, world-renowned speaker on creation. One of the guys is going to tell a story. So I'm kind of challenging you in a loving way. Clear your calendar on Friday. Sign up for the stake and study. And if, you, if you've been having somebody in the back of your head that you feel the Lord's been wanting you to talk to, you've still got five or six days to figure out a way to tactfully, or tactfully invite them to a place where they're gonna hear the gospel. Amen? I'll leave it at that. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for John chapter four and the woman at the well. Lord, what an example on how you drew this woman out, the sarcasm of being called Jew to the revelation that he was not only a prophet but the very Messiah himself. And that you changed and healed this broken, wounded soul that was hurt in life. And Lord, you said we must go to Samaria. And I pray for any of this morning, Lord, that have never um, given their life to you, even here watching live stream, that they would know, Lord, that if you're hurting and you're not happy and you're not content, that you are the living water that can bring forth water that you'll never have to thirst again. And I pray for that one, that you'd break through, that they be, if they today, as your word says, if they hear your voice, that they will come to you. I pray for that individual this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Eight in Indiana, and there was no rides. But I was determined, the Lord had broke me to the point, saying, when are you gonna share your faith with somebody? And I remember the wrestling match that went on. 
And I said, okay, Lord, you give me a ride and I'll witness to the person that picks me up. Because there was nobody out on Highway 8 in northern Indiana. And sure enough, pickup truck pulls up and I get in and I start unloading. And um, you know how you learn how to witness? You'll do it wrong a whole lot of times. I got out of the truck and I said this to myself, well, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I'm not gonna say this anymore. And it's a learning curve. How do you learn to witness? Just start doing it and you'll say, well, that worked and this didn't. And don't be mouth on automatic. Go for the dialogue. Try to open them up. As it says, um, um, counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. That's what Jesus was doing. That's Proverbs 20, verse five. Draw it out. Well, it took me a long time to figure out that you need to get a person interested in what, find common ground. And in so doing, um, you can share your own personal story. Everybody has a story. So I'm gonna speak to the person here who still struggles with sharing their faith by asking you this question. I'm talking to men right now. Sorry, ladies, the gals are on a retreat. So I'm talking to the men. And you have somebody on your heart, and you already got plans for Friday night. You're doing something else. Why not put those plans on hold? The person that you've been thinking about, how can I ever share with this guy about Christ? I'm not very good at it. Well, Jay Seeger is. And Andy Polito is going to tell his story. Why not invite him to the stake and study? Give the, pay, you know, talking a a nice rib steak for five bucks, you tell him that you make sure you're gonna pick up the tab for him coming. Well, what's it gonna be like? Well, just a bunch of guys getting together. I'm gonna have Jay Seeger, world-renowned speaker on creation. One of the guys is gonna tell a story. So I'm kind of challenging you in a loving way. Clear your calendar on Friday. Sign up for the stake and study. And if if you've been having somebody in the back of your head that you feel the Lord's been wanting you to talk to, you still got five or six days to figure out a way to tactfully tactfully invite them to a place where they're gonna hear the gospel. Amen? I'll leave it at that. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for John chapter four and the woman at the well. And Lord, what an example on how you draw, drew this woman out, the sarcasm of being called Jew to the revelation that he was not only a prophet but the very Messiah himself and that you changed and healed this broken, wounded soul that was hurt in life. And Lord, you said we must go to Samaria. And I pray for any of this morning, Lord, that have never... Um, given their life to you, even here watching live stream, that they would know, Lord, that if you're hurting and you're not happy and you're not content, that you are the living water that can bring forth water that you'll never have to thirst again. And I pray for that one, that you'd break through, that they be, if they today, as your word says, if they hear your voice, that they will come to you. I pray for that individual this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.